have been talking about the self, and it's sort of counterintuitive. Everything about this series is kind of a, just a little nod. Even if you look at that bookmark and you're like, this design is not from this era. That's, that's kind of part of the point. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Uh, I was driving down Route 1 recently, and there's these signs for this medical uh, procedures and facilities, and I, I, I don't think it's like plastic surgery. I think it's like actually like orthopedic surgery. And, and the line is like, be who you were. And it has this older person. And I'm just like, it's not possible. <laughs> like, I'm like, it's a lie. You can't be who you were. Even I'm 37. And some days I wake up and I'm just like, it doesn't work the way that it used to. <laughs> and that's only going to become more true, at, you know, as I'm looking at who I'm telling this to. Don't worry about it. You'll get there. But our culture lives with this lie that we can, we can create a self, that we can sustain a self. And the best part about seeing that for what it is as a lie is that Jesus offers us something so much better, so much freer, freer of burdens. You know, Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is who Jesus is. And so the heart behind this series has been, how do you have a self so that you can give of yourself. If you grew up in church, the idea of focusing on yourself in a sermon series, you may be like a little uncomfortable, right? You're like, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm not supposed to have a self in church. I'm supposed to die to myself. And Jesus certainly calls us to do that. But he calls us to know ourselves because Jesus was the fullest human who ever lived. He was fully God, completely divine, but completely human, completely man. And we want to hold those things together as we seek to be a people who are giving ourselves to the world. We certainly first need to understand what it is to have a self. Jesus' greatest commandment is that we would love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then he says there's a second commandment that's like it. that You would love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we usually focus on the outputs of that. I'm loving God. I'm loving my neighbor. That's the output. But what it, Jesus assumes in that text that you will love yourself. And so this is not like an everybody gets a trophy, like you're all awesome. Like Jesus calls us, and we're going to see this today, to sometimes costly obedience to painful transformation. But he loves you. He has blessed you. He has called you. He made you. And so we've been looking at how God sees us. And today, what we want to do is sort of transition a little bit and to see how we begin to establish a self in a community, how we begin to understand ourselves and relate to ourselves. And what I want to do today is just give you four questions. These are actually questions that God asked throughout the Bible. Four questions to begin to, to both understand yourself and actually as sort of a tool for you to use as you begin hopefully to draw near to others who are following the way of Jesus with you. And I hope that becomes more clear. But uh, to, to start, Marva Don says, Human beings are especially created to image God, and a significant part of that imaging is fellowship. In our relationships with each other, we model the community of the Trinity. Now, the, the Christian faith historically has held that God is mysteriously and in a way that I will not try or attempt to explain, both three and one. That God is one, Shema Israel, like this was their fundamental prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. But at the same time, he is manifested in the sense of Father, Spirit, and Son. And those are equal and separate and all, again, 
Anybody who starts giving you analogies for the Trinity, uh, run. But mysteriously, we hold on to that truth. And we just rest in it. It's a divine dance that God has called us into. And so part of us being human, part of us knowing ourselves, is knowing ourselves in relation to others. Is, is being called into community, being called to be the church. Eugene Peterson says the best way to pick a church, and this is self-serving, so I'm going to be honest, but the best way to pick a church is to find one and stay there. All right, so that's self-serving. You're all stuck here now. But the questions we want to wrestle with, and I, I apologize, my, my slides did not make it. Zechariah, you're good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm just going to give you the questions, and we'll kind of go from there. All right, so th- we have four questions here, and we'll go through them. We'll unpack them. First question, where are you? Where are you? The second question, and we'll, we'll unpack these in just a minute. Jesus asked his disciples, what do you want? Where are you? What do you want? The third question, can you drink the cup? And for some of you, if you grew up in kind of a Christian household or you've grown up in church, that question means something to you. For others of you, it doesn't. That's okay. We're going to get to it in just a moment. And the last question, do you love me? So I'll say those again. Where are you? What do you want? Can you drink the cup? And do you love me? Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered him, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. So I hid because I was naked. This is the first question that God asks in the Bible. Up to this point, God has been speaking and declaring words, creating worlds. Now, God has introduced a new element into his relating. Where are you? Now, it may seem, if you know the story, that what what has created this sort of crisis point is that the man and the woman that God made to be made in his image and to cultivate and steward the garden have disobeyed the one prohibition he gave them. He says, look, I give you every tree in the garden, all of this goodness, blessing and joy. Just stay away from this. There's one thing that's not good for you. And. If you know the story, the man and the woman traverse those limits. They step across that boundary, and they find themselves in nakedness and shame. And thus we have the beginning point for our story today. Now, it may seem, and as a parent, I've done this at times, where I know what's going on, I know what has happened, and I ask a question nonetheless. It is not a question that I'm seeking information. I know who the culprit is. I know what has happened. I know what has been broken. I know who did it. And I'm, do you want to tell me what happened here? But sometimes we think this is what God is doing, right? We think that he is intending to bring us to a point where we feel shame. It may seem that God is asking a question he knows the answer to, but I think what's going on here is God asks the question, where are you? Is God is taking, even though the man and the woman have taken a step away from God, and really a decisive step away from God, God is taking a decisive step towards them. There is still relational speaking. Again, if the world was brought to life by speaking, then somehow, because words are conversational, words are relational, God has always intended to be in relationship with us. And notice here, God doesn't give these people the cold shoulder. He doesn't say, well, you know what you did. 
passive-aggressively turning away. God still has a question to ask. God still has a move of drawing near. And he asked the question, where are you? And this is a relational question, a seeking question. And God is the seeking God. God pursues us. And even when we run away, God never stops. He never relents. God is curious. He's collaborative. And his questions not only seek information, but they invite us into transformation. Now, Adam reads into God's intentions. As God asks him this question, where are you? Adam thinks that he's trying to, uh, to show how Adam has deeply uh, broken the law that God has established. Adam thinks that God is trying to shame him, like a lawyer in a court of law trying to catch him. But I think this question when it's allowed its full resonance, offers something much deeper, especially when it comes to our lives before God and before others. Think of how often, I mean, I asked so many of you as you walked in today, how are you doing? And the answer was generally miserable, cold. Although there were some, some optimists among us who were like, the snow is such a gift. And I was like, you're so right. You're so right. Thank you for reminding me. But we get asked the question multiple times a day, how are you doing? Now think of how rarely, if ever, we answer the question honestly. How are you doing? Well, I'm busy. Well, that's not actually a state of being. How are, how are you doing? We rarely answer that question honestly. And, and oftentimes, friends, that's appropriate, right? Like you meet somebody new. I met some of you in the lobby for the first time. Hey, Ian, how are you? Let me just unpack this dark night of the soul I'm in or, you know, unpack the struggles of my week. That's not really appropriate, right? But we often, even though we know that that's not appropriate, we often don't have spaces where we can answer that question honestly, right? When somebody is seeking us out, where are you? How are you doing? We actually don't often have forums where we can be honest about that. And what drives that hesitancy, even amongst people that love us, that are genuinely asking the question, because I, I think for most of us, we have people that when they ask, how are you doing, they could hold the answer if we were to offer it. But what drives us and what prevents us from doing that is our own shame. We think that we can't move towards, we can't divulge this part of our life. How are you doing? Well, shame tells us that we should keep that repressed and hidden. But what if God, in asking questions, and what if sort of leading in this way, inviting us to be a people who ask questions, is actually inviting us to tell our story, to narrate our story? Later on, we started in Genesis 3. In Genesis 16, an angel of the Lord meets a woman named Hagar. Now, Hagar is in a very weird position. Again, there's a lot of cultural stuff here that we won't go into unpacking, but Hagar is a slave. And Hagar is a slave in a household of, of Abraham and Sarah, who are like the promised people of God. They have been uh, called by God to be blessed by God. And the main blessing that they have been promised that has not yet been fulfilled is that Abraham and Sarah will have a child. Now, if you know the story, Abraham and Sarah are well beyond the years of childbearing, but that is the promise nonetheless. God has promised that there will be a child. But they get restless. They're like, okay, God, we've heard this promise, but we just don't think you're able to fulfill it. So, in a weird cultural move, acknowledging this, Sarah takes Hagar as her servant and gives her to Abraham 
to have a child with as sort of a, you know, pre-modern surrogate. And there's a child. But as it goes, Sarah, even though her plan works, it makes her terribly envious and hateful towards Hagar. And she sends Hagar away with her child. And Hagar is running, and she's in the wilderness. She's fleeing from Sarah because Sarah is so oppressive, so mean to her. And as she's running away, an angel of the Lord meets Hagar, this powerless woman. You know, we start, we, we've sort of started to grasp, like, understanding narrations of power in our culture and how there's always these kind of dynamics at work. This is a woman who has no agency in the world. She has a son. She's, being, she's fleeing to the wilderness, just trying to survive another day, and she really thinks that she's gone there to die. And when the angel of the Lord meets her, the angel says, where are you coming from, and where are you going? Again, voicing in another way the Lord's question. And Hagar, in desperation, what more could she do? There's this stranger here. In desperation, she pours out her life before the angel. And the angel instructs her to return to where she's coming from. And he gives her a promise about her son Ishmael. And then, after this interaction in verse 13 of Genesis 16, it says, So Hagar named the Lord who spoke to her. She said, You are El Roy, for she said, Have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? The question, where are you? Where are you going? Where are you coming from? Is an invitation to know God ourselves and the story that we are telling ourselves more deeply. Think about it. This is incredible. The first person to name God in all of the Bible, the first person to say to the world, this is what God is like, is a slave woman who has been discarded, a powerless woman. She is forever has the legacy of being the one to say that God is the God who sees. And we've started there in this teaching series just talking about how God sees us. God sees you in your beauty. He sees you in your brokenness. This is who God is, and he doesn't turn away. Rather, he meets us with provision, with promise. And Ecclesia, we need space to answer the question honestly, where are you? We need space to answer it honestly before God. And, and I commend this practice to you, not because you know, it's, it's anything magic, but it, I do think that it does begin to excavate some of those uh, experiences that we carry around. But if, if you don't journal now, I just want to commend that to you. I know for some of us that's such a hard discipline, but it's just such an invitation to be honest before God. And, and what's beautiful, it becomes sort of this record and can I just say real quickly, there's not like a, a magic way to do it. It is very much stream of consciousness and just like acknowledging like, all right, God, you're here. I'm writing stuff and you are reading it. And, you know, in that process, I think you're able to discern. I mean, the problem for us is not that we're not carrying around deep burdens and thoughts. It's often that we don't allow ourselves to be still long enough to actually know what they are. I think for many of us, the question, where are you, if we were to ask ourselves, we don't, we don't know the answer. It's just, and there's just so many distractions that are available at every moment. Like, just think about what it means to be alone now versus what it meant to be alone even 20 years ago, right? Like we, we can't 
really ever be alone without a great intentional effort to put our phone in another room. And that's just the reality. That's going to be our reality. It'll be you know, the reality for generations to come. And so journaling is a great space to start of just like understanding where are you. And then as you begin to unpack that and understand it, then when somebody asks you who you trust, who you know can carry it, you, know, you might have something to be like, hey, I, I've been thinking about this a lot, actually. I've been wrestling with this. We need space to answer the question, where are you, honestly? And what we find is that when God asks the question, where are you, even if it's a very dark place, even if it's a place he told us not to go, he will follow us. He will pursue us. Even if we make our beds in the depths of hell, you are there. And I know some of you have been to that place where you're like, God could never be He's been there. This is the, the beauty and the pain of the story of the crucifixion and resurrection. There is nothing that we can experience in this life that Jesus himself has not assumed and healed. Where are you? The second question, what do you want? God's asking you what you want. That's kind of, what are you looking for? This is the first question that Jesus asks in John's gospel. What do you want? John 1, 35. It says, the next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, look, here is the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, what are you looking for? Which is another way of asking the question, what do you want? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. What do you want? Jesus' question Though the implications were not immediately apparent, was an invitation for these first disciples to find what it is that they truly wanted. Now, think about, if, if you can imagine with me for, for just a moment, these disciples are fishermen. They are, their life is sort of ordered for them. They're not trying to, you know, go into a counselor at school and be like, you know, what are my gifts? What's my Enneagram type? Like, the people in these times had the same level of uh, like deep thoughts that we had, but they just didn't have the societal constructs to be talking about some of these things. Their life was laid out for them. Their father was a fisher. Guess what they were going to do with their lives? They were probably going to fish, and they were already doing that. They were expected to carry the family trade and business. But upon meeting Jesus, they leave their nets, they leave everything that is expected of them behind, and they're like, I don't know how or why, but this one is the one, and we are going to leave everything behind and follow him. And what becomes apparent through the story is that as these disciples leave all that they know behind, it's actually a doorway to a much truer and a much deeper desire. Hear me on this. Peter, for instance, he thinks he wants to be in the inner circle of the coming Messiah, the one who will overthrow the Romans and restore proper worship to Israel and elevate Israel to the glory that God had promised it to bless it with. 
So Peter responds to that desire. You have to understand, for, for the people that are looking at Jesus initially, they don't think, okay, you're the Messiah, you're going to be crucified by the Romans, and on the third day you will rise again. That is not their expectation. That is why nobody understands Jesus when he talks about the level to which he will suffer, to what he's going to accomplish. They think that Jesus, in claiming that the kingdom of God is near, and that he is the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of David, that he is a king, a general. Think about their perspective of kings. They had kings like David, who was famous for killing thousands upon thousands. Like They were not like, okay, we need to love our enemies. They were like, the Romans are terrible. They tax us beyond belief, and when we step out of line, even just a little bit, they crucify whole towns, and they display those people along the roads. The people that were responding to Jesus initially hated the Romans, and they had every reason to do so. And Jesus, through their life together, is going to call them to love their enemies, to love their oppressors. And we see this in Peter's life. Peter doesn't understand what Jesus came to do. When Jesus tells Peter that he, and the rest of his disciples that he is going to suffer and be killed, Peter says, no, that will never happen to you. When Jesus comes to wash the disciples' feet, Peter says, no, this is not proper. This is, this is not what you're here to do. I'm here to serve you. And when, Peter is or when Jesus is arrested and tried, Peter denies that he even knows Jesus. You see, Peter's misplaced desires, the wrong answer to the question, what do you want, cause him to live out of his false self, fearful, protective. And we will see, and we saw last week, how Jesus restores Peter. But for now, the important question for us as we begin to, to see how we can hold ourselves before God and present that self to others is what do we want? Kurt Thompson says that we often do not name our desires because we fear that they may be too much or fall outside the boundary of what God or others see as proper. Sometimes we cannot name them because we do not even know what they are. So bound up are we by years of dismissing or denying desire. In either case, in not naming what we want, we neurobiologically burn energy containing it, only to have it leak out, often in unproductive or even harmful ways. What do you want? You were made, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, Thomas Aquinas said, you were made with a desire for infinity. You know, Augustine, his famous quote, you have designed us, Lord, for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You were made for an infinite God. And God invites us to cultivate a life with him and with others by naming our desires. The problem for us in our culture, and I think really in every culture, is that we don't understand that our desires are a doorway to our truest and deepest desire. The truest thing about you, the truest thing about each one of us, is the part of you that desires deeply to know, to love God, and to be yourself before him. You were made in the image of God for relationship to God, and the truest thing about you is all of that it yearns for that to be true of you. And when we lose this understanding of, our, of desire, we lose the understanding that our desires have a designed end, and thus the desires themselves have a purpose. And what we do is we elevate the desire itself to the end and the purpose, satisfying that desire. Instead of doorways to the divine, what Ronald Rollheiser calls a holy longing, 
Our desires become mere biology, animal longings that must be satisfied. But I still contend that no matter how broken and distorted our desires may manifest themselves, and yes, God wants to heal those behaviors, those things that we try to fill our lives with that aren't God. God wants to heal those things. But if we trace those polluted, broken desires back to their source, we would find the God who wants to fill those longings, those true longings, with his own life and purpose. And we need safe spaces. You need people in your life, companions on the journey, where you can express your desires. And it's not just like, again, I think we think of a desire as often like, it's always like seedy and broken. Like, you have desires to build something. You have desires to create beautiful stories, to discover something that nobody else has discovered to cultivate beauty in order to maybe live simply. You're like, hey, everybody here is trying to be like the, the, the greatest scientist in the world. You know what I want to do? I want to live a simple life before God. You have desires, and you need people that can carry those. We need others, Kurt Thompson says, to bear witness to our deepest longings, our greatest joys, our most painful shame, and all the rest in order to have any sense at all of ourselves. This process begins at birth. No newborn decides who he is apart from the presence of others to whom his little mind desperately looks to be seen and heard. His cries of distress are integrated only when received by others who see him, who soothe him, make him feel safe and secure. And we've talked about this, but our desire to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure never goes away. It's just that that desire changes. And a newborn, it's, it's supposed to be met by their parents, right? And we know we can all express broken situations where that is tragically untrue. But this is what God is wanting to do, to say, I see you. I acknowledge you, and you are safe and secure in my gaze. Now, as we talked about, it's not appropriate that we try to create this space with everyone. Jesus himself had an inner circle of three that saw him at a unique intimacy during his life. But we need people who can truly ask us, where are you and what do you want? We need marriages to hold this sacred space together. But, but let me say this too. We often idolize marriage in the church. And we try to make marriage a space that can hold all of this burden and need of what it means to be human. We try to make marriage a space that can hold all of our desire to be seen, safe, soothed, and secure. We try to make marriage a place where our identities are fully expressed and acknowledged. And it just won't hold that water. Jesus himself, unmarried, called around him a community and said that you are a new humanity. And so I just want to give you a vision, Ecclesia, that, that yes, we need our marriages to be sacred spaces for this kind of interaction but we also need to be a people who bear witness that we are not just a nuclear family, 1950s, whatever that is, America. We are a people that are made new by God's love for us. And that crosses so many different societal boundaries that our culture puts up. Now, your answer to the question, what do you want, may be simply that. I just want people in my life to see me. You may be hearing this and both acknowledging, Ian, what you're saying is exactly true, of course, but I don't have that person in my life. Can, can I just encourage you? I, I don't, that's like a prayer for healing. I don't have some answer to be like, okay, if you just do this, like, but can I just encourage you to start with prayer? 
Like, Lord, I need, pil- I need companions on this journey. I need pilgrims to walk with me. God is the God who answers prayer. God is the God who speaks out of nothing and as it is. God is the God who does the impossible. And I think for many of us, we just never had this experience of like community, of walking with people. And I, I understand that. But God desires that for you. And even if you're starting from a place of like, I don't know who those people are, begin with prayer. And, and I say that in all faith, because as much as I'd like to do a you know, friendship pilgrim matchmaking and be like, oh, you two, you should hang out. You know, I, I pray that the church is a place for that. But I also know that we can be so locked in on our loneliness that it feels like there is no hope. And Ecclesia, you have hope. Now, People, especially church people, who have been taught that our desires are hopelessly broken, like that any desire is, is a manifestation of something broken that God wants to like stamp out of you. We need, we, we understand, we, we get a little nervous when we start talking about desires as a path for God. But when we do this, we miss that naming our desires is simply a step on a journey. Again, all of the disciples wanted Jesus to be a conquering king. They wanted Roman heads to roll. That was their desire. What did they want? They wanted government overthrow from their oppressors. They wanted Jesus to lead a new rebellion. James and John's mother comes to Jesus, and she says to him, Look, Jesus, we all know you're the conquering king. It's going to be awesome. Uh, you know, God is restoring the kingdom to Israel. You're the one we've been waiting on. The seat of honor, that main throne is all yours. But there's going to be some thrones on the other side, like, you know, maybe some cabinet positions, secretary of, you know, state, Israel affairs. Um, I don't know if you checked out my sons, John and, and James. They're, they're pretty great. They like you a lot. They're in the inner circle already. So when you come in your kingdom, could you just let them sit at your right and your left hand? Now, we have a cultural name for these kinds of parents now, lawnmower parents, parents who are paving the way for their children. And listen... As much as I'd like to judge John and James' mom, I kind of get it, you know, as a, as, a, as a dad, and, you know, I know, speak for Courtney, like, sometimes we're just like, we just want to make things easy on him, like, even though that may not be the most beneficial thing, it feels good in the moment. But when Jesus asks us the question, he asks us, and he asks John and James' mom this, he says, can you drink the cup? Can you drink the cup from which I will drink? Naming where we are and what we desire is just the beginning of a process. Again, Jesus invites us not to become and be, you know, perfect in the immediate. He says, come follow me. Come be with me. Jesus calls us to come follow him. Now, we all develop in our lives, especially for those misplaced, unnamed longings. We develop coping strategies. We indulge in food and wine and social media because we think these coping strategies will help fulfill those deepest desires. And even if we know that they won't, like, honestly, I think if we went around and we just said, like, hey, you know that's not going to satisfy, you'd be like, yeah, I know. But it kind of feels good for the moment. It works, right? And this is what idolatry is. It's just something that works at a very micro level that doesn't satisfy. Kurt Thompson says, we must say no to the impulse to lose our temper. We must say no to food. We must say no to the narrative shame has formed. And the very self-condemnation we use to protect ourselves. We must say no at times to those appetites that, in the moment, we believe we cannot live without. We must desire, if we desire, to create and become living, breathing icons of beauty. Drink the cup. 
And Jesus says, what do you want? And then he says, can you drink the cup from which I will drink? Now, often those who have been in 12-step recovery programs understand this really, really well. These meetings allow space for naming where you are. I am an alcoholic. Right? Those are like incredible words. And for expressing a desire of something more, like just by walking through the door, you're saying, I am an alcoholic, but I do not want that to be true of me. I do not want that to be my, my orienting identity. I want to live out of something deeper, something greater. But the pain of transformation for somebody in a 12-step program is not fought in the meeting. The pain of transformation is fought in dismissing the lie that the thing, that the substance, whatever it may be, promised can deliver on what it is promising. The pain of the transformation happens between the meetings. Can you drink the cup, Jesus asks. Gerald May says that we are all addicts and our recovery is a lifelong journey. 1 Corinthians talks about our lives going through a furnace. And if you think of how a clay pot is formed by a very hot fire, formed into something beautiful that can hold something else, or how silver is formed, to refuse this process, to refuse to drink the cup that Jesus offers us, is to refuse the beauty for which our lives were called to manifest. We are God's workmanship, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. You were created to be a living, breathing icon of the beautiful God who made the world. And just as Jesus drinks the cup of suffering literally on the cross, and in doing so brings forth beauty, we in our lives are not fulfilled by escaping our griefs, our disillusionments, our disappointments, our shame. We can't be free by numbing ourselves by those things, but by experiencing their transformation, their resurrection in the hands of the God who makes all things new. The first thing that God's, God names in the Bible as not good is that we would be alone. And Jesus, our saving king, suffers our fate alone to undo the shame that isolates us. We need companions for the road, those who will hold the cup for us when it gets too heavy, those who will even taste from the cup of suffering that we will drink from. Again, Jesus' questions are an invitation to relationship with God and to a relationship with others. And I'm sure there are so many of us in here who feel so overwhelmingly lonely, even in our walk with Christ. And to that, Jesus asks us this last question, do you love me? The last question is Jesus' question to Peter. We looked at it in depth last week, and you can check out the teaching. But as we've seen, Peter denies Jesus, living out of his false self, drawing from the shallow well of misplaced desire. He desires to protect himself. He has a fear of people, and that manifests in denying Jesus. And Jesus meets Peter right at the depths of his shame, asking him three times, the amount of times that he denied Jesus, do you love me? And each time Jesus asks the question, Peter says, yes, Lord. And Jesus, with each successive question, gives Peter a call, a vocation, feed my sheep. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, you're on the shelf until you can really prove to me that you're not going to deny me again. No, Jesus says, you are forgiven. You have a calling, a vocation. The world needs you. Jesus won't leave Peter in his shame. Jesus restores Peter to himself and then calls him to participate in the story. And you know, one of the reasons I think we love like these big epic tales, and the one I always think of, forgive me for this, is Harry Potter. Our daughter's reading that right now, and we've been talking a lot about it in our house. So it's just a great story. But these epic tales 
that just immerse us in their reality, we find that the people in the stories are not all that different from us. Okay, sure, there's, there's some, some wizardry flying around. Like, I don't, I don't have a wand. There's some spells happening. There's a bit of magic here and there. But we see these people who are like us, overcoming seemingly insurmountable odds in the surface of all that is good, beautiful, and true. And I think we miss this part about knowing ourselves, about knowing God and knowing others. You were called into a story, into a fight. You were called, as Jesus says to Peter, to tend the sheep. You were called into a mission. Jesus doesn't spend all this time unpacking all the trauma and all the stuff that people have experienced, not because he's not going to do that. He is. But because part of learning who we are in Christ is by walking on the road with him, by following him, by doing the things that he has called us to. And in that process, we will come to know ourselves and the world will be blessed and healed. And so it's not a, hey, fix yourself, get yourself all figured out, and then the world will be ready for you. The world needs you now. Peter will fail again. If you read the narrative of the scriptures in Galatians, Paul calls him out and says, hey, when those people come from Jerusalem, you stop eating with these people. And you're undermining the gospel. Like, Paul goes hard on, on Peter. But I'm telling you this to say, like, friends, I think sometimes we think that you're going to get to this point where you're enlightened and illuminated enough to where God can use you. And you know what Jesus is saying to you? First, a question, do you love me? You may not even know what that means, but you're like, yeah, I think I do. Second question is not a question. It's a direction. Feed my sheep. Get to it. And we find ourselves in giving of ourselves. This is what Jesus shows us, participating in the story. We need to step into the full life that Jesus has for us, both so that we can know ourselves and so that the world will find blessing and healing and restoration. And it starts by the questions that God has for us. Where are you? What do you want? Can you drink the cup? Do you love me? Jesus meets us in this place. And I encourage you to sit with those questions this week. I encourage you, if, if, if you're just feeling like, okay, I know I need people alongside me. I don't know who those people are. Begin to pray. And I encourage you to, and I'm going to invite our worship team to come back up and lead us. Over these next few moments, we're just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come in a manifest way. Now, God is always present. God has been here this whole time. Actually, the image in Revelation is that Jesus walks the aisles. That's beautiful stuff. Is that he's walking among the lampstands of churches that are gathered in his name right now. But what I know is that for so many of us, we need to have those narratives of shame unraveled. You need to begin to see how God sees you. That he doesn't see you as broken, as hopeless, as even like listless, like you're, oh, you're just floating through life. God has something for you to do. And that first thing is he calls us to himself. And so, friends, if you came in here and you're just carrying whatever, Jesus loves you. And his love is a love that undoes shame and it unburdens us. And we don't always know what to do with that other than to say, God, I give it to you. And so maybe today the first question that you need to just let yourself rest with is what am I carrying around? Where are you? And to let God have it. 
as we pray over these next few moments, if you're just feeling like, Lord, I, I, I want to pray with somebody about having a, a companion, about people alongside a community of life together, following Jesus, we'd love to pray with you about that. If you're just feeling a sense of, of, of burden, of shame, like this is the place to lay it down. Jesus calls you and he can transform a life in a moment. He asks us these questions so that we could know ourselves. We could receive his beautiful life that he gave for us on the cross and that offers us to eternally in his resurrection. We're going to pray for just a couple of moments and sing, and then we will come to the table together. Let us allow God in these moments to, to bring those questions before us, to narrate his version of the story. Let's pray and let's sing.